This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with goods that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for a man, by himself, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, in his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So 16 years ago, I was driving from Colorado Springs to Denver, a beautiful 50-minute drive that I frequently uh, made, and my heart was racing, and my back was sweating, and my mind was swirling. I was driving to the jeweler I'd contracted and paid uh, to design and create Trisha's engagement ring. I was beyond nervous, and you could say I was quite worked up as I thought about the magnitude of this moment. I knew that I was getting closer and closer to committing to live the rest of my life with Trisha. I finally exited the highway about halfway there, and I pulled up to a payphone. Uh, For those of you too young to know what a payphone is, essentially you would put a quarter in it. You can make a call, or you could call people collect, which is what I did. And I called a really good friend who knew us both quite well. And the first words out of my mouth were, this is all a big mistake. I cannot do this. I am not ready to commit. And the first words out of his mouth were, are you crazy? You're such a buffoon. That's the G version. You get in that car you drive to that jeweler, you buy that ring, and you marry that girl. She's amazing. She loves Jesus. She loves people. She's a servant. She's bright and joyful. For some reason, she feels like God is calling her to marry you. She's naturally beautiful. She's an incredible teacher. She's full of grace and kindness again and again. She has forgiven you and accepted you and blessed you when you've tried your best to screw this thing up for several years. Get your butt in that car. Buy that ring, 
Put it on her finger. Commit your sorry life to her right now if she'll still have you. Best advice, bar none, I've ever received in my life. Amazing. In our current series, we're studying a few psalms from the various major genres in the Psalter. And Psalm 103 is a psalm of praise. And we've said before that psalms of praise always contain at least these two elements. They contain a call to praise and they contain reasons for praise. And so remember, to praise is to assess something as valuable and then to communicate that assessment. A call to praise is to command others around you, not invite, but command them to join you in the assessment you have made and in the communication of that assessment. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. This is the call to praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Uh, The words praise and bless can be used synonymously in the Psalter, and and technically the word bless means to kneel, but in this context, uh, the the psalmist is talking about praising God internally. Uh, Oh, my soul, kneel to the Lord. All that is within me, kneel to him. And and basically the psalmist is saying this, commit your life to him. Uh, If you will, buy the ring and bend the knee. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And that's essentially what my friend was saying to me on the phone when he described the value and the beauty and the glory of Trisha. He said, forget not all her benefits. You can think about it this way. He he was praising Trisha. He had assessed her value, and he was calling me to join him in the the communication of uh, that assessment. And, And essentially what he was saying is the only way you could doubt this, the only way you could doubt this, is if you're forgetting who she is, if you're forgetting what she does, if you're forgetting the benefit she brings to your life. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 20 through 22 of Psalm 103 are the call to praise. It's David telling himself and all of creation to praise the Lord. Verses 3 through 18 are the reasons for praise. These reasons are summarized and introduced as benefits in verse 2. And so with this in mind, we're going to study Psalm 103 this way. His benefits, our forgetfulness. His mindfulness, our praise. His benefits, our forgetfulness. His mindfulness, our praise. So first, uh, his benefits. And so again, David speaks uh, to God's benefits to us. You, you could say uh, he speaks of God's dealings with us in, in verses 3 through 18. It would be impossible to do justice to these 16 verses and to all that they imply, but I want to at least provide you with an overview, and I want to mention David's primary points before I move on. Okay, so first, there are three sections in verses 3 through 18. If you look at it, I'll kind of fly over and show you these three sections. He's talking about God's benefits to any in relationship uh, with him through his covenant. David provides an overview of the benefits to his own life in verses 3 through 5. The yours and the you's in verses 3 through 5 are singular. David is, as you know from verse 1 and 2, he's talking to his own soul. And, And then David writes about God's dealings with Moses and Israel, and he shows that his own experience of God was in keeping with who God revealed himself to be in Exodus. So from verses 6 to 8, David is again writing about God's dealings with Moses. Uh, Finally, in verses 9 through 18, David comes back to his own time period, and he talks about the benefits that all the people in his community experience in their relationship with God. So he's gone gone from you and your, singular, talking to his soul, to us, 
our we throughout verses 9 through 18. And so while all the sections will offer unique thoughts and contributions on who God is and what he does and and the benefits that flow from relationship with him, because he's talking to three groups at different times, there's going to be repetition and there's going to be redundancy. There's repetition and redundancy because even though he's talking to different people hundreds of years apart, he's talking about the one God. And I don't want us to miss his main point. His main point is this. God overflows in steadfast love towards his people. Again, a lot of attributes, a lot of actions. Many are repeated throughout the 16 verses. None is repeated more than steadfast love. Steadfast love to David, verse 4. Steadfast love to Moses, verse 8. Steadfast love to the community of faith, verses 11 and 17. In verses 6, 7, and 8, David writes about Moses and the Israelites during the exodus from Egypt. And so in verses 6 through 8, David is clearly making reference uh, specifically, specifically to Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And in Exodus 32, after incredible acts of redemption in Egypt, and after incredible acts of redemption at the Red Sea, after incredible, consistent provision by God to his people in the wilderness, in Exodus 32, uh, the people, along with Aaron, sin in massive ways. Uh, They make a golden calf to worship in Moses' absence. And so while this is happening, uh, Moses is with God on the mountain, and and God finally tells Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to consume those people with my hot wrath and my holy anger. Moses doesn't get out of the way, but instead he intercedes and he pleads for mercy. And in chapter 32, God quickly relents, and he quickly gives mercy. In chapter 33 of Exodus, uh, uh, Moses says to God, show me your, quote, ways. Show me your ways so I know how to deal with you. God has completely shattered Moses' paradigm. And Moses is saying to God, I want to know your ways. I want to know the paths on which you walk. Uh, This was a way uh, in the ancient Near East for someone to talk about a person's personality and characteristics. Their ways were not their actions. Their, Their ways were the paths on which they walked. And so David tells us in, in Psalm 103, 7, he said, God did make known his ways to Moses. And then verse 8 of Psalm 103 is a quote from, from Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses. He tells him, Moses the, the, the meaning of his name. He tells Moses the essence of his character. And he answers Moses' question, what are your ways? God could have smoked the Israelites Moses intercedes, and God gives mercy, and Moses says, who are you? And the Lord says, well, let me tell you my name, and let me tell you what it means. Again, what God said in Exodus 34 is found in verse 8 of our psalm. You can go there. David is referencing Exodus 32, 33, and 34 in these, four, in these three verses. This is what the Lord said to Moses. This is what David says to us. The Lord is merciful. I don't make my people suffer the just consequences of their sin. The Lord is gracious. I lavish undeserved favor and blessings on my people. The Lord is slow to anger. Literally, it's long-nosed in the Hebrew because the nose gets red and the nostrils flare when one is mad. Uh, There is this idiom in the Hebrew language uh, for patience where someone was long-nosed. In other words, it took a really long time for their nose to get red and for their nostrils to flare. And so God says, I'm long-nosed, which means I'm patient. 
But finally, and most importantly in the text, uh, the Lord says to Moses and David says to us, the Lord is abounding, overflowing, much, many, in steadfast love, loyal love, committed love, covenanted love, promised love. Listen to this. God is mercy and grace and patience, but more than anything, he's steadfast love. It actually might be better to say that because God is steadfast love, he's gracious, merciful, and patient. So you can think about it this way. Verse 8 contains attributes about God, and then verses 3 through 5 contain actions that David experienced from God in light of his attributes, in light of God walking down those paths. And so again, David writes that God has treated him with steadfast love uh, like he did the Israelites and Moses. And David says to his soul, forget not all his benefits. And then in verse 3, the Lord forgives all your iniquity. I love that. Singular. Iniquity. If you're like me, we we sin many times in many creative ways, but if you lump all of them together and call it iniquity, David says it's, it's all forgiven. Not just some, not just most, all. Benefit number one, forgiveness. If you look down at verses 9 through 12, you can see that David picks up on this benefit of forgiveness and he keeps going. And verse 9 is really hard to translate into our English translations. And because it's hard to translate, it's really hard to know exactly what it means. But no matter uh, what it, it, how it should be translated or what it means, the commentators will all tell you this is very positive. This is incredibly positive. Literally, verse 9 reads this way, He will not eternally rebuke, nor will he keep forever. There's actually no object in the second half of verse 9. David could want us to read in anger from verse 8, or he could want us to read in rebuke from verse 9. We can't know for sure, but either way, it's incredible news for us. This is not here to scare us. This is here to tell us that God rebukes us, but that rebuke is nothing compared to what our sins deserve. And the rebuke or maybe the anger, it will not be a part of God's character or his interactions with us for eternity. He's making a comparison between what God will be forever and what God is for a time. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. And so what David is saying is that God temporarily rebukes or maybe he temporarily gets angry. But just like James said in the New Testament in his epistle, God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Verse 11, while God's anger is temporary, his steadfast love towards us is infinite. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 12, God puts an infinite distance between us and our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The first benefit to not forget because of God's steadfast love, is forgiveness. But also, if you go to the second half of verse 3, David says, the Lord heals all your diseases. Uh, David is talking about the culmination of God's saving work in our lives. David is ultimately talking about the abundant and eternal and perfect life that we will have with God. I mean, if you think about it, God does not heal all of our diseases in this life. David knows that. But one day, God will heal us, and he will place us in a world with no illness and no pain. 
Read verse 4. The Lord redeems your life from the pit. He's talking about Sheol or eternal dying. Uh, We weren't just guilty in our sins, but, but we were dead and we were enslaved in our trespasses. And God redeems or ransoms or purchases us from that death. Into verse 4, the Lord crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord takes you from captivity and he makes you royalty. Further, the Lord, verse 5, satisfies you with good so that your youth, your early days are renewed or repaired or recreated like the eagles. And David is saying to us as if we as humanity were old, he is saying God's going to turn back the time and God's going to get rid of time. And you will forever be in the new heavens and the new earth and you will forever have the strength and the soaring vitality of an eagle. It's obvious that at least in part, David has eternity on his mind in Psalm 103 because if you look down at verse 17, uh, he says this. God's steadfast love, it isn't just one that abounds more than grace, mercy, and patience. God's steadfast love isn't just that reality which towers over us and on us, but also God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear God. In other words, God's steadfast love, his loyal love, his promised love, his covenanted love was on us before he created us, and it will be on us when this creation is gone. When this creation is gone. Who is this God? He's merciful. So his people's sins and his anger are removed from them infinitely. He's gracious, so his people are given royal status for eternity. He's patient, and when his nostrils do flare, his steadfast love is greater than his anger. Kneel to the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, surrender to him. Commit your life to him. And if you begin to doubt and if you begin to get cold feet, forget not all his benefits. So first, his benefits. Second, our forgetfulness. Now, I realize that many of you haven't heard a word I've said for the last 10 minutes. Largely because you sleep. Some of you sleep through all the sermons. But many of you got lost uh, when I admitted that I had cold feet about marrying Trisha. You're like, how could you possibly doubt marrying her? She's one of the most enjoyable human beings that God has ever knit together. Did you really doubt marrying her? Further, this is what you're thinking. Ted, you might be slightly better now than what you were, but you've acknowledged to us that you were quite the fool and quite the rebel and quite the donkey uh, 16 years ago. How could you possibly forget the benefits of Trisha committing herself to you for the rest of her life? And I know it's hard to believe that I doubted and I forgot, but I did. And I occasionally still do. Some of you don't know Trisha and you don't know me, and you heard all that I said over the last 10 minutes. And you heard all that I said about God's benefits and his steadfast love. And you're thinking, is it really possible to forget this stuff? Mercy, grace, forgiveness, healing, righteousness, freedom, status, eternal life. Is that really possible to be forgotten? Absolutely. David in verse 2 tells his soul to not forget God's dealings with him because David knows that the heart can grow cold. David knows that as fallen human beings, we have the proclivity, the propensity, and the tendency to forget. That in fact, in our fallen state, things fall apart including our memory. 
There are multiple stories of Jesus' disciples being uh, in a boat in the Gospels, and I think many, if not most of them, are all about forgetfulness. Uh, Think about Mark 8. In Mark 8, we we learn of the story of the disciples traveling in a boat and realizing that they had forgotten to bring along enough bread for the trip, And, and the text tells us that they have one little loaf for 13 men. And Mark indicates that that a long, intense conversation ensued between the twelve. And I would presume that there was a lot of blaming. I I would presume there's a lot of defending. I would presume there was a lot of worrying. And Jesus interrupts them and he starts asking them questions. Why are you talking about this? Do you not understand who I am and what I've done? He says, Are your hearts hardened? He literally asks them, Do you not remember? When I fed 5,000 men from a few loaves and a few fishes, how many baskets full of bread did we have left over? Jesus asked them that. Uh, Twelve. When I fed 4,000 people, how many baskets of bread were left over? Seven. Jesus is like, you have one loaf. That's more than enough. Do you not remember? And we think, How did they watch Jesus twice provide a lot from a little and still forget and get anxious and worry about the future and he's right there with them? How could they possibly do that? The same way that God's provided for me for 38 years and I'm worried about next week. As fallen human beings, we have a proclivity towards, a propensity towards, a tendency towards forgetfulness. In Matthew 14, in the midst of a storm, Jesus calls Peter out of the boat and into the water, and Jesus tells him, well, I want you to walk with me. And as you know, Peter gets out. But then all of a sudden, while while he's walking on tumultuous waves, it says that he sees the wind, whatever that means. I think there's something there. Someone else will have to explain it to us. But whatever it means, he sees the wind and he forgets, and he begins to sink. Months did not go by between him walking and him sinking. He forgot Jesus' power and Jesus' presence in a nanosecond. Do you ever wonder how you can leave worship and sin in the parking lot? A propensity and a proclivity and a tendency to forget. In Exodus, as God is preparing Moses and his people for the Passover event, the tenth and final plague, he tells Moses, as they're packing, as they're getting ready for this historic event, he tells Moses, I want you to celebrate the Passover annually, year after year. And he gives them a lot of descriptions for that. He says, I want Israel to plan their year around this event. This is the first of months for them. And I want this week-long Passover every year. And he tells Moses multiple times, this is why we're doing it this way. I want them to be reminded to remember my grace and my power and my salvation when I brought them out of Egypt. And we're like, really? They're going to need a call to remembrance for that event? Is there really any chance that they'll forget that night and the nine plagues prior to it? Do they really run the risk of forgetting that when God struck dead the Egyptian firstborn, he passed over and hovered over and protected them from his own wrath? Are they really going to forget the sound of God's army passing through the land? Will they really ever forget the Egyptians crying out in a way that has never been cried out before? Will they really forget God's benefit to them when he brought them from slavery into freedom? Actually, yes. Exodus is the story of them forgetting for 40 straight years. You see, David tells his soul to forget not all God's benefits because he knows from his own life and from his own story that he has the propensity towards forgetfulness. 
Now, David doesn't tell us in the psalm what happens when we forget. But I don't think it's that hard to tease it out. Depression, anxiety, excessive guilt, fear, shame, pride, selfishness. This is what happens to me when I forget. When I think some of my sins can be forgiven while others are too big or too frequent. Or when I think that I have to counteract my sins with some good deeds. I forget that all my iniquity is forgiven in the mercy of God. When I exhaust myself trying to get the approval of a human being or, to, or when I exhaust myself in my efforts to succeed or be perfect or when a human being uh, doesn't approve of me and it makes me angry or makes me despondent, I've forgotten that my Heavenly Father likes me. He's quite fond of me. He's been in love with me from eternity past. When I become arrogant and self-centered, when I think I'm all that in a bag of chips, I've forgotten that Jesus, I've forgotten all that Jesus paid to ransom me from the slavery I sold myself into in my sin and stupidity. When I try to get ultimate life out of this life or when I spend my money and time trying to look young, I've forgotten that one day God will repair me and he will satisfy me. You see, we may not forget these benefits in a theological or theoretical way, but our actions and our, emo- our emotions functionally prove we're prone to forget the benefits. So first, his benefits. Second, our forgetfulness. Third, good news, his mindfulness. And of course, the point here to be made is that, in, that, that our selfishness, our forgetfulness, our frequent episodes of faithlessness, They do not negate the eternal benefits of God. In verses 3 through 5, David speaks of God forgiving him and eventually bringing him into glory and into heaven, into the new heavens and the new earth. And David speaks there of an eternity of time. But in verse 13 and following, David speaks to how God deals with us and how God benefits us in the here and now. One day we will be renewed and repaired and perfect One day we won't be able to forget God and we won't be able to forget the benefits to us in the gospel, but in the here and the now, spiritual Alzheimer's is the norm. With our propensity to forget in mind, look at the amazing good news in verse 13. Yet another benefit. As a father shows compassion to his children, so also the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Hebrew word for compassion is related to the Hebrew word for a mother's womb. And so David is clearly saying what Jesus teaches us to to pray when we pray. He's clearly saying that God is our Father. But he's saying as Father, God shows us warmth and a compassion and an affection that we ordinarily associate with moms and their newborns. Look at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He knows our situation. He knows our context. He knows about our forgetfulness. He remembers that we're dust. Big idea in the psalm, we forget, he remembers. In Genesis 1 through 3 and other places in the Old Testament, the idea of us being dust conveys not only that we're finite and that we're mortal, but also that we're sinful. And in fact, this concept of dust reminds us that we're mortal because we're sinful. 
And David is saying in the same way a dad remembers his kids, in the same way a dad remembers his kids' limitations, in the same way that a dad remembers his kids and does all he can to keep them alive, so also God the Father warmly and tenderly and continually remembers that we're finite sinners. And he keeps us alive in his steadfast love. Don't miss this. David implies that we forget and we will forget verse 2. But David literally says in verse 14 that the Father is continually being reminded of the fact that we're finite and we're broken and we're mortal and we're sinful. It's like one parent saying to another, don't forget he's a toddler. Don't forget he's a kid. Don't forget he's just three years old. The verb is passive and continuous, and it indicates that God keeps telling God to remember that we're dust. God keeps telling God to remember that we're dust. To remember is literally to remember, to reassemble, to take the facts and take the truths and reassemble them. For, to forget then is to have all the facts fall apart. The truths and the promises of the gospel are constantly falling apart in my mind and my heart, and that's when I act out in sin. But God continually reminds himself to reassemble and remember the gospel for us even when we forget it. When we are faithless, he is faithful. Verses 15 to 18 compare a mere mortal who doesn't know God with a child of God. Verse 15, as for man, man all by himself, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. But the wind passes over and, and it is gone and its place knows it no more. The flower for a while might be impressive, but the flower returns to dust. The pieces fall apart. The life comes to an end. But, and here's the contrast, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Apart from the Father, we die. But with his everlasting steadfast love on us, we can never die. Finally, for this morning, our praise. His benefits, our forgetfulness, his mindfulness, our praise. And I would submit to you this. Listen to this. I don't know that I've made this particularly clear, and I don't know uh, that you won't have to think with me for a second to catch this. But I would submit to you that David is teaching us here that all of our sin flows from forgetfulness. Our main problem is not so much uh, what we do or what we don't do. Our first and foremost problem is that we forget about God and his love and his salvation. It is not so much what we do, but that we forget who we are. You can actually see the development in Psalm 103. In verse 18, the people who remember to do God's commandments, the obedient, are the people who keep his covenant. Uh, further, those who keep his covenant have thus far in the psalm three times been called those who fear him, those who worship him. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 17. In verse 18, you'd expect to read yet again for the fourth time, those who fear him. But instead, you, you read those who keep his covenant. And so through poetry in this psalm, David is saying that the two descriptions are synonymous. And so fear or worship or praising God for all of his benefits is what it means to keep his covenant. And fear or worship also brings about the obedience that we need in our lives. So listen, obedience flows from remembering who God is. 
and who we are in his steadfast love. And so if remembering the gospel, if not forgetting his benefits is a big deal, how do we do that? Uh, Said differently, how do we remember so that we don't forget? And it's simple, and it's preaching to the choir, but we go to public worship. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Psalm 103 is a psalm David would use in leading God's people in corporate worship. He's clearly talking to the community of faith as he's commanding every individual to join him and telling their souls to bless and praise God. The way to not sin or the way to obey is to fear God. And the fear of God comes when we remember his benefits. And the very best place to remember his benefits is public worship, where we are reminded of all his benefits in song and scripture and fellowship and prayers and sermons. I often say it like this. The Bible tells us that God communicates or gives or imparts his love and grace to us in a variety of ways and in a variety of places. But the one place in our lives where we can go and come into contact with the greatest number of those conduits of grace and those conduits of love is public worship. Public worship, this right here, right now, is a smorgasbord of grace and remembrance. Gorge yourself. Stuff yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. The number one prayer that I pray for my kids when they go to college is that they would attend a Bible-teaching, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church. I pray that God would have them get up every morning and rehearse the gospel in his word. I pray that their number one community would be other believers walking along the way trying to win those who are lost. My number one goal my number one prayer is for them to go to worship. They're sinners just like me. They need grace. They're going to feel guilty because of Saturday night. They need Sunday morning. They're going to feel powerless. They need a strength. They're going to forget for six straight days, and I am begging God, drag them in to worship and gorge them on your gospel. This is a smorgasbord of grace. I received a letter recently that was written by a friend, and she was commenting on this series in the Psalter, and she was commenting on her enjoyment of it, and she was being honest with me about her doubts, and she was being uh, honest with me about her bouts of unbelief, and she was being honest uh, with me about places in her life and, and relationships in her life where she lacked joy, and a lot of me resonated with a lot of her letter, and the window to her heart resonated with my heart. But the point for us this morning is her last paragraph. This is what she wrote. Thanks for telling me the good news week after week. Speaking, of course, of Jesus and the gospel and God's steadfast love. She wrote, I've recently said rather dramatically, but quite honestly, that Sunday morning from 10 to 11 is the only time I truly believe that God loves me. She writes, I hope those hours increase, but for now, I'll forever love that one hour. To be obedient, we need to worship. To worship, we need to remember the benefits. To remember the benefits, we need to keep coming back to worship where God communicates his benefits to us in so many ways. There are so many benefits to being a child of God's. 
you and I, we forget them all the time. We're prone to forgetfulness. But God, like a father, continually brings to mind that we're forgetful, and he remembers us even when we don't remember him. And of course, this is all true because Jesus on the cross was forgotten and forsaken by the Father. Jesus, after living a perfect and beautiful life, after keeping God in mind his entire life, he died for my forgetfulness, and he died forgotten by the Father for you. Do you know the only time in the Gospels a prayer of Jesus is recorded where he doesn't say, my Father, is the prayer on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? God forgot him so he could remember us, and when he remembers us, we're his children. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to you now with hearts filled with gratitude. I come to you now, and I think of my sin and my doubt and my unbelief, and it's just so foolish. It makes no sense to me. And yet I know from 38 years that I will again slip into this folly and this sin. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that your gospel is so rich and so good and so pure and so true. It's so abounding and beautiful. I thank you that you put us on the mind and the heart of the Father by giving us your righteousness. I thank you that you have clothed us in your righteousness. And so, Father, Daddy, he sees us like his little kids, and he is very fond of us. Jesus, I pray that you would bring the benefits of the gospel to our minds and to our hearts on a more frequent basis. I pray that you would free us from sin because we forget the benefits we have in you. Would you show us how to not focus on what we're doing wrong, but to focus on who we are? Teach us to live out of that. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.